Good morning on that note. Uh, as he said, I'm, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And if you haven't been with us for the last few months, we've been working through this book. It's the story. And what it is, is it's a condensed narrative version of the, st- of the scriptures. We started back in January all the way in the book of Genesis. And last week, we got all the way up to Solomon in the book of First Kings. But as we're entering into Easter, we're actually going to be setting the story aside. And we're going to jump from the book of First Kings all the way into the New Testament this morning. Okay? And little, little things here. Which means this, we've been having a reading plan for the last uh, few months as we've been reading through the story, and here's the thing, we recognize life happens, and when life happens, everybody falls behind on their reading plan. And so we intentionally built in, as we enter into Holy Week and the week after, two catch-up weeks. Two catch-up weeks. So if you're behind on the reading plan, like you got two weeks to get caught up. And here's the thing. We also built another one when we come to summer. So don't worry about it, all right? Everybody can have a breathing space. But a little thing. Um, What you may not have noticed is when Pastor Chris and I sat down to talk about preaching through the story, he really articulated having one goal for preaching through the story. One thing he wanted to accomplish, and it was this. He wanted to help everyone connect the dots. He wanted people to understand how the Old Testament was connected to the New Testament, how the God of the Old Testament is the same God we see in the New Testament. And more importantly, when you connect the dots, when you see how the Old Testament is related to the New Testament, you you walk away with a much bigger picture of who Jesus is. Now, what's been interesting to me is as we've been working through the Old Testament, I have had so many people, so many people come up to me and they say something like, why do I need the Old Testament? <laughs> like, can we just move on already? They don't like the names. The places are kind of confusing. <clears throat> and then you have this like, weird sacrifice system and there's all this blood and gore it just feels so foreign and so people are like why why do i need the old testament why can't i just stay in the new testament i like jesus why do i need the old testament it's a fair question and here's the thing i think there's other people in this room who are asking that same question like why can't we just get to the good stuff why can't we just get to jesus it's a fair question so this morning i want to address that question This morning, I want to dig in and answer that. And the simple answer is this. Because without the Old Testament, Jesus makes no sense. Without the Old Testament, Jesus makes no sense. And think about this. Without the Old Testament, when you read Jesus, you realize he's like a brilliant teacher. This is recognized by by all sorts of people. Everybody recognizes Jesus was a brilliant teacher. And he absolutely modeled how to love well. But that's it. He's like this beautiful amalgamation of Gandhi and Aristotle, right? And you just are kind of left hanging, and that's all you have is this brilliant, respectable person. And so when Christians make statements like, this is our king, this is our Lord, this is our savior, it rings a little hollow. If all you have is the New Testament, it doesn't really make sense. And here's why. Without Jesus, the Old Testament doesn't make sense any sense, or excuse me, without the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't make any sense. And to get even more specific, we're entering into Easter week, we're entering into Holy Week, right? Easter, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, without the Old Testament, what is it? Doesn't really make sense. I mean, I love Palm Sunday because they give me a sword, 
okay? I love that. Other than that, what is this holiday? What I want to do is I want to prove it to you. I want to prove to you today, to the best of my ability, that without the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't make sense. And I want to do that by having you open up to the traditional Palm Sunday text. It comes out of Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 to 11, Mark chapter 11. And here's the thing. What I want you to do to the very best of your ability is as I read today, I want you to pretend this is your first time reading this and you are entirely ignorant of the Old Testament. I want you to the best of your ability to pretend that you know none of the background, like you've never heard a sermon on this text before, that you've never heard of David, that you've never heard of any of this. And I want you to pretend as we read that this is the first time you're hearing it. Now, I recognize there's some of you in this room right now who are thinking, dude, that's how I feel every time I come to church. I have no idea what it's like. If that's you, you are the perfect target audience today. All right? You are exactly where you are supposed to be, and I'm so glad that you're here. You will not be as lost, I hope, as I intended. <laughs> My hope, though, was with you in mind. So if you don't know anything, you're exactly where you are. And even if you've heard this a thousand times, I want to try and get in your head that without the Old Testament, this passage makes no sense. Okay, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 11. It says this, As they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Some of you are already beginning to say, Hey, if I was supposed to pretend I don't know what's going on, you got me. <laughs> All he's talking about is this. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, was entering from the east. Okay, Bethphage, Bethany, they're a couple miles outside of Jerusalem to the east. That's all you need to know. When they were doing this, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go ahead to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. I want you to untie it, and I want you to bring it to me. If anyone asks you, uh, why are you taking that donkey? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, but he's going to send it back here shortly. So the disciples, they did it. They went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people, understandably, were standing there and said, uh, what, are you, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, just as Jesus had told them to, and the people were like, okay. So the people let him go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and Jesus sat on it. Many people then spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Others shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And another, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! After this, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was pretty late at night, he went back out to Bethany with his 12 disciples. This is the word of the Lord. So, again, many of you are going to be familiar with this passage, right? Many of you have heard this story before, and so you know this background, but here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine you know none of the background. What do you have in this story? You see Jesus with a certain preference for a specific type of donkey, right? 
that he's very adamant his disciples have to find, and people somehow just give it to him. They're like, yeah, sure, there you go. And then he mounts this donkey, and he rides it into town like he's on a parade. Right? Everybody's like, woo, woo, Jesus, yeah! Cool story. <laughs> I mean, if you're a person that likes parades, you're like, this is the best story ever. But for the most of us, you read this, and without the Old Testament, this story makes no sense. Without the Old Testament, you're really lost. Like, why is Jesus riding a donkey? Why does he care so much about this specific donkey? But here's the thing. When you put Jesus in the broader Old Testament context, what you're going to realize is this. This scene is packed with imagery and significance. When Jesus asked for that specific donkey, he knew full well what he was doing. He knew full well what he was doing when he got on that thing and started riding into town. And what he was doing was very specific. He was trying to reveal something very important about who he was. He's going to reveal something significant about himself. And so this morning, my goal is I want to flesh out that picture for you. I want you to have an understanding of what was going through Jesus' mind when he got on that donkey. I want to help you connect the dots. I want to take a lot of the stuff that we've covered so far, and I want you to see how the Old Testament is incredibly significant for understanding Jesus. And so the way I'm going to do that is this. I'm going to start back in Genesis. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to cover much of what we've already done. I'm going to get up to King David. I'm going to get up to King Solomon. And then, in fact, I'm actually going to go a little farther, further, I'm going to go a little further into the prophets. The teachers in the room caught that. Um, <laughs> we're going to get a little into the prophets. And the reason for that is this. When Jesus gets on this donkey, he's not just pulling one Old Testament text. Typically, we just say, oh, he's pulling one thing. He's meaning one thing. No, no. Because that Old Testament text connects to everything else that comes before it. What Jesus is doing when he gets on this donkey is he is presenting this beautiful picture that began all the way in Genesis and stretches all the way through the kings and he's stepping into that background and claiming it as himself. He's owning that. I know you're curious, right? You're like, well, what is he doing? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to start in Genesis and I'm going to tell you the story. Now, we're going to attempt to do something today. We're going to attempt to use technology. <laughs> And I say attempt because every time we've tried this in the past, it doesn't work. So if it fails, it's on me and then the phone. Blame, blame Bill Gates, okay? <laughs> Back in Genesis, we start in this beautiful picture of a garden, right? The very beginning of scripture, you have God and he simply speaks and everything comes into existence, right? It's this powerful picture. God just speaks and everything obeys his command. And the pinnacle of creation is humanity. Humanity made in the image of God, and God allows them to, yep, we're already lost it. We did so well. Made in the image of God. And what happens is this. God then takes the pinnacle of creation, humanity, and he places them in the garden. And as he places them in the garden, he tells them they can do whatever it is that they want. Whatever, except one thing. 
They're told that there's this tree in the middle of the garden that they can't eat from. And the reason they're told they can't eat from this tree is because something dangerous about this tree. And if they eat of the fruit, they will die. At the same time, though, there's another character that's in this story. And another character is the serpent, right? And we don't really exactly know where the serpent came from in the story. All we know as we read the story is the serpent is the the physical embodiment of evil. The physical embodiment of all that is against God. All that is in rebellion towards God. He is the deceiver. He is the anti-God. We don't know how he got into the garden, but he's there. But this serpent begins to tell a contrary story. Remember, God says, don't eat of this. You can do anything you want. You have complete freedom except from this tree. Don't touch this tree. And the serpent goes, why don't you touch that tree? Come on. It's not going to hurt you. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. That's a tempting choice. You will be like God. And so the serpent presents these two paths. And these are the two paths Adam and Eve find themselves in. Do they honor God? Do they trust God? And do they obey him? Or do they trust the serpent? Do they rebel? Do they disobey? Do they become gods in their own right? Do they determine their own destiny? It's a powerful question. The problem is, you know what happened. Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel. And as they rebel, sin and destruction and brokenness and all this pain that God warned, it enters the world and it begins to ripple out from this garden. And what you see is marriages destroyed. You see brothers turning on brothers. You see nations turning on nations. And the whole world spirals out of control. This beautiful place that God created and intended ruined in an instant. Simple choice ruined the entire thing pretty hopeless. But in the midst of this hopeless situation, God speaks hope. He has this weird promise to Adam and Eve. This weird promise where he tells Eve that one day one of her descendants, a future son of Eve, will come and face this serpent And in facing this serpent, we're told that he will crush the head of the serpent. But in crushing its head, and it's hard to see on there, he receives a wounding of his own. It says that his own heel will be crushed. This weird promise. And here's the thing. If you read it, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It just hangs there. No explanation. No real discussion about it. It's just there. One day, there will be a future son of Eve who will come and crush the head of the serpent, who will crush evil at its core, but in doing so, will receive some wounding of his own. As the story continues, we're introduced to another guy. Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a guy named Abraham. And God makes another promise to Abraham. He tells Abraham that through him, the snake crusher will come. Specifically, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
Abraham's descendants now are the ones we're told that we're going to be following. And so the rest of the Old Testament just follows Abraham's descendants. It chronicles their adventures. And so you start with Abraham, then you got his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And now we have the 12 tribes of Israel, or better known as the nation of Israel. And what we have is we then follow this nation. We follow them down into Egypt, into slavery, out of, of slavery in Egypt, into the promised land. We follow them as they establish a nation, and we see all the ups and downs that go along with it. The one thing that remains abundantly clear, though, as we watch the people of Israel, it's this. Israel is a stand-in for humanity. And what we realize about humanity is this very simple fact. Humanity, when left to its own devices, will always make the same choice as Adam and Eve. Humanity, when left to its own devices, will always have two choices. Do I follow God? Or do I follow myself? My own desires. You always have these two choices. Unfortunately, what we see is humanity always chooses sin. And remember, when we got to the book of Judges, we saw this cycle played out in a very vivid way. This cycle of destruction that when Adam and Eve, or excuse me, when humanity is in a good place, for whatever reason, we always forget God when times are good. All of us know this. When times are bad, you have no problem in the hospital bed going, God, where are you? God, I need you. But you win the lottery? What God? <laughs> what God? I don't need God. And so when times are good, Adam and Eve, along with the rest of humanity, they always go this opposite way. They choose to rebel. The Bible's word for rebellion is just sin. They choose to sin. And because God is a just God, a God who does not turn a blind eye to evil, God doesn't go, oh, that's so cute, you messed up. Well, I'm just going to ignore that. Imagine you did this with your own children, right? Every time they mess up, you go, that's just so cute. You want some money? Here's some candy. That's a terrible parent. Terrible. Right? God's the same way. He's not going to allow that. He's going to say, fine, you've got to face the consequences of those actions. And so the consequences that consistently face Israel is this. They are oppressed. Every time they turn from God and say, no, I want to go my own way, God says, fine, but you've got to face the consequences. Fine. You want to sin? Fine. But there's consequences, and those consequences are always in the form of some foreign oppression for Israel. Some form of consequence that leads to Israel being in a place of brutal suffering. To the point where they then cry out and go, God, why'd you do this to us? They blame God for their circumstances. But God, true to his character, every time in the scripture consistently sends a savior figure consistently sends a savior figure. And the purpose of the savior is to take Israel from this broken place and take them into a good place. You know this story, right? One of those savior figures is a guy we looked at the last couple weeks, a guy named King David. And as we read King David's story, we realize that this is a good guy. This is a guy that as we read, we're thinking, man, this guy this guy's got it all together. In fact, we're told David is a man after God's own heart, right? And you're thinking, well, if anybody's going to be the snake crusher, it's the guy after God's own heart. 
If anybody's going to pull this off, and here's the thing, Pastor Chris a couple weeks ago brilliantly deduced what it means to be a person after God's own heart, and he said it was this. David was constantly in pursuit of the possession of God's heart. Another way of thinking about it is this. If you always have these two choices, everyone faces these two choices. You know this. Do I go God's way or do I do things my way? David consistently tried to seek God's way. That's what he means to be a God, man for God's own heart. Is he constantly said, how do I honor God? How do I obey him? What would God have me do in this? And so we read this and we think, man, this guy's the guy. This guy's the guy. And we're thinking, this is going to go so well. We're finally going to see it all fixed. The promise to Abraham, the promise to Eve. Now, instead of David being the snake crusher, we realize that David is crushed by the same snake. The same evil that pervades humanity is in David's own heart. If you don't know David's story, the short and sweet of it is this. At the height of his reign, David gets lazy and complacent. He's seduced, better yet, he seduces his best friend's wife, impregnates her, and then in an attempt to cover it up, has his best friend murdered. Terrible decline. And when we get to Solomon and we get to the rest of David's sons, we realize that they're no better. They are each worse and worse and worse. They're corrupted by wealth. They're seduced by women. And more than that, they continually worship false gods. The entire time, the, the whole cycle, it's spiraling out of control. Israel is plummeting. And it comes to this place where Israel, at the bottom of it all, is destroyed. Israel is destroyed. They're carted off to Egypt by Babylon. It's depressing. That's the Old Testament, guys. But there's one more promise. There's one more promise. At the height of David's reign, right before he falls, David is just on fire for the Lord. He is passionate about God. So he tells God, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple, something to honor and glorify you because you are such a good God. And God goes, that's so cute, David. Nice try. I don't want you to build me the house. Instead, I'm going to flip that. I'm going to flip it. And David, instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And so there's this promise. We're told that from the line of David, there will one day be a future king. A king who will rule over the earth. And through this king, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And through this king, as all the nations are being blessed, this king will be the snake crusher. This king will be the snake crusher. And these promises, they just linger. In the midst of this destruction, in the midst of this chaos, they're there. To rethink about these promises, I want you to think about it like this. The promise to Eve is the most general, the most broad. Someone from humanity will crush the snake. Then more specifically, someone from the line of Abraham. And through him, not only will the snake be crushed, but all of the world will be blessed. And then more specifically, through the line of David, this person will also reign as king over the world. He will be a righteous king, a good king, a king everyone wants to be under. This is the image we have, and these are the promises. 
The problem is this, is, this is what's going on. Israel's spiraling into chaos. The world is literally crumbling around them. And we wonder, well, what's going on? But in the midst of this, God continues to send people True to his character. Again, true to his character, God continues to send people. We call them prophets. And these prophets, their sole job is this. Their job is to continually remind people of those three promises. Continually remind people, hey, God has not forgotten you. He will send a king. Through that king, all the world will be blessed. Everything will be made right. And he will defeat evil at its source. These prophets, they keep speaking about it. One prophet in particular, a guy named Zechariah, he has this prophecy that says, when the Messiah, the the Christ, or the one who's been anointed to fulfill these promises, when he comes, here's how he's going to do it. He's going to enter into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. And as he does, everybody's going to celebrate him. Is anybody in the room going, oh, Oh, here's the thing. I told you at the beginning, without the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't make any sense. Without the Old Testament, Palm Sunday doesn't make any sense. But with the Old Testament, we realize that when Jesus mounted that donkey, he knew full well what he was doing. He was tapping into, he was stepping into this rich tradition and he's owning it and he's claiming this identity for himself. He is declaring very clearly, very profoundly, very loudly, I am the king. I am the one who's the long-awaited one from the line of David. I am the one through whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I am the one who is the snake crusher. I am the snake crusher. When he mounts that donkey, that's what he's saying. But I don't know if you realize this. He knows full well who he is. And this is beautifully haunting as we enter into Palm Sunday. Because as he mounts that donkey, he knows full well that as the snake crusher, he must be crushed. He must be crushed. His own heel must be crushed. And so as he enters into Jerusalem, he does not enter on a donkey to ascend his throne. He enters to fulfill his father's mission. As he enters and he sees all these people celebrating and shouting for joy, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He knows that within a matter of five days, these shouts of blessing are going to turn to shouts of cursing. These shouts of Hosanna are going to turn to shouts of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He knows this. And yet in majesty, he rides on to die. That is a powerful story. When we enter into Palm Sunday, this is the tradition we're stepping into. As we enter into Easter, this is what we're celebrating. We're not just celebrating the death of Jesus. We're celebrating the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promises that he made all the way in the beginning, that he has continued to carry out throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus steps in and owns that identity. It's powerful. But so what? So what? Right? I got my hair cut this week. Looks fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. And while I was getting my hair cut, 
I love this. While I was getting my hair cut, the, the, the lady cutting my hair just made this offhand comment. I don't even know if she knew what I was doing, like what I did for a living. But she's talking about church, and she's talking about how she hates going to church when the pastor does this sermon and then just kind of leaves it there with no practical meaning behind it. And I was sitting there like, okay, I'm preaching on Sunday. <laughs> I got I to gotta fix the end of that talk. <laughs> what do we do with this? What do we do with this? So I've been reflecting on this. I've been chewing on this. Here's my reflections. I think as we enter into to Holy Week, two things become abundantly clear. And they're pretty uncomfortable truths. Two things. The first is this. You and I are no different than Adam and Eve. No different than Adam and Eve. No different than David. No different than the rest of Israel. We're faced with these two choices. Are we going to follow God or are we going to make gods of ourselves? You're faced with the same choice and you know as well as I do every single time, what are you going to do? Whoop! You're always going to choose yourself. And when we do this, we have to own that just like Adam and Eve, we are responsible for the brokenness, the pain, and the misery of this world. We have to own that. As we enter into Easter, the thing that makes abundantly clear, especially the Good Friday service, is we are the ones who nailed him to the cross. He didn't die for others. He died for me. He died for you. It is your sin that held him there. As you enter into this season, you have to own that. You have to own that. And if you're like, well, the world's not that bad. Did you watch the news this week? Those gas attacks, heart-wrenching. Heart, horrible, disgusting. Truly made me want to vomit. Bombings of churches in Egypt this morning. What the heck is going on in this place? We live in a broken world, and you and I need to own that we are partly responsible So you enter into Easter week with a confessing heart, owning your stuff. Stop pretending you didn't do it. We enter in knowing full well, yeah, okay, I did this. And why do we do this? Because when Jesus did it, he knew full well what he was doing. When Jesus entered in, he didn't accidentally find himself on the cross. He knew. He was the snake crusher. He had to be crushed. He had to own this, and he manned up, and he sat on that donkey, and he rode into town. He knew it. And I think this is the other truth in the midst of this. While we see brokenness in our world, while we see depravity spiraling around us, we have to remember, we have to remember that in Easter we celebrate that there is an alternative. Prior to Jesus, we were stuck in this cycle and there was literally nothing you could do about this. But when Jesus comes, he paves over the consequences of sin. He owns the consequences and now we have a new choice. Before, we couldn't even make the choice to follow God. Before, we couldn't even make the choice to step into the life that he intended for us. Before God, we genuinely couldn't change the world. But because of what Christ has done, because when Christ died, he rose from the dead, he gives us hope. 
Hope of a different reality. Hope to challenge the status quo. Hope to continue to pursue him. Speak goodness. Model love into this world. That's powerful. So what do we do? (laughs) I didn't answer that question. What do we do? Here's what I'm going to do. This week, I'm just going to slow down and realize it. I'm going to own it. The simplest, most practical application I can give you. This isn't a go out and fix the world assignment. This is a go out and reflect. Go home this week. Take time at your dinner table. Take time with your spouse. Take time with your friends as you're sitting around and just be like, you know what? Can we just talk about the brokenness? If I need to, I'm going to confess some of my own stuff because as I enter into this season, I'm going to be remembered that Jesus died for this so that I can truly live. Experience the fullness. Slow down. Pastor Chris said it at the very beginning. As we enter into Easter, it's so easy to get caught up in the holiday. So easy. I mean, you got to plan the honey-baked ham store, right? You then got to go and get your Easter eggs. We already bought our eggs, guys, and then we got to stuff them tomorrow. And you, you just get lost. Everybody does. Slow down. Get to the services this week. This isn't for our sake. It's for you. Be mindful of who God is and what he has done for you, church, so that in response this week, when you get to Sunday, you can genuinely celebrate. He is risen. It is finished. Lift your weary hands and rejoice. Let's pray. I don't really know where to go. I'm going to (laughs) pray. Father, we recognize who you are, and God, again, declare you are good. You are a good God, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of power, a God of foreknowledge. And Lord, as we turn on this day, Palm Sunday, to celebrate Jesus Christ, Lord, we recognize who he is so clearly. We recognize what he has done for us. And we recognize that none of this was by accident. It was all intentional. When he mounted that donkey, he knew full well who he was. He is our king. Through him, the world will be blessed because he is the snake crusher. He has come to free us from evil. And so, Lord, as we enter in, we also confess that we have hearts that admittedly are full of evil as well, that have been bit by the same snake. But, Lord, we trust that as we hand this over to you, just as Christ has died, all of our sins are atoned for. All of our sins are laid at your feet. All of our sins are consequenced. And so on Sunday, as we enter back into this space, Lord, we enter with rejoicing hearts, hearts that have been set free, hearts that have been made alive through your son, Christ, and hearts that are then alive to go and make a difference in this world. Lord, for your son and for your namesake, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.